Welcome to episode 102 of Goodwill Hunters, brought to you by Goodwill Media. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Prue Clark. Prue is an award-winning journalist, professor, and media development specialist. Since 2004, Prue's reporting has focused on sub-Saharan Africa, where she has uncovered corruption in the mining industry and child trafficking war in Ghana. Prue is the co-founder of New Narratives, an organisation supporting investigative journalism and independent media houses across Africa by investing in journalists through a multi-year on-the-job mentorship program with senior editors and journalists working for reputable media outlets around the world. In this episode, we discuss the intersection of media and development and how supporting free and open journalism is in the interests of vulnerable communities everywhere. Before I go, I'm so excited to be speaking at Oceania Connect this week. I'm speaking twice, once on Wednesday and once on Friday. I hope to see lots of you there. Enjoy the episode. Prue, thanks for speaking with me. In your career in journalism, you've reported in over 40 countries. What have been some of the standout stories? Well, uh, probably hard to go past 9-11. That was a, um, you know, a searing experience for everybody who was there. Um, You know, as a journalist, a young 27-year-old journalist, I'd only been in the States for a year and I'd been an ABC journalist for for about four years. So I really was a baby. Um, And um, it was a real, you know, definitely uh, a baptism of fire, Um, and I didn't really know, I didn't really understand, I think, the job or what I was doing <laughs> until that day. Um, but, uh, you know, I came, so I was, you know, I, I had gone down um, to the buildings when the first plane went in. I was in New York having just finished from uh, doing the, my degree at Columbia Journalism School. And I was working for the Financial Times newspaper. And uh, the plane, the first plane went in. So, you know, as a good news reporter, I, I ran down. And uh, pretty soon, you know, we, it became clear that it was a fairly big deal. Um, you know, I saw bodies falling out of the building. Um, I was there just, you know, as the, the first building came down, I was about two blocks away. You know, it took a fair bit of time to process it. I reported it for the ABC, so I was, you know, on air in, you know, fairly soon after it happened. Um, but I think, you know, the last story I had had done was probably, you know, a, a fire in Sydney, you know, before that. So it was um, a huge change. Uh, and, it, you know, it took me a while. I think, you know, as a young journalist, I'd always wanted to be at those big events. So I'd always wanted to to, you know, be at the the Hindenburg crash or the Titanic or see those things for myself. And it took me a re- really long time to understand that this was one of those events. Um, so it was incredibly uh, changing uh, and awakening as a journalist. Um, you know, I spent the few days after the event running around doing what we normally do, going to uh, hospitals looking for victims and families to talk to and of course you know it became pretty clear very quickly that there weren't any victims and families to talk to um and it just required a whole different approach to telling that story and while trying to understand what was going on at the same time um which was a lot for a 
for a young journalist to get my head around. (laughs) Is there a level of separation that you can have from the trauma of the situation because you're a journalist? I do now. Um, You know, after that, I went to Africa and spent, well, I've I've really been reporting from Africa for the last 15 years. Um, And, you know, I've covered wars and child soldiers and all the rest. And I've had to learn distance, especially after I had my own children. I think um, being a a war correspondent or or a reporter in countries mired in poverty is much harder once you've had children because you see the same things happening to your own children um, and I think you understand it at a, at a different level. Um, so I've definitely developed um, coping mechanisms. There's a lot of therapy, I have to be honest, um, <laughs> a lot of retreats to the country and engaging with nature. Um, but at that first moment, it was it was really tough. I definitely had PTSD afterwards. Um, I had a couple of reporters that I really admired tell me that uh, to expect it to take a toll. Uh, and I, I like to drop their names because it was um, Robert Thompson, who's, you know, an Australian who was a reporter with The Age. Um, he's now the head of News Corp. And he was my boss at the Financial Times. And also Max Utrich, who's the, who was my boss at the ABC and, you know, uh, they a long-time foreign correspondent, and they had both, by coincidence, been in Tiananmen Square, which had clearly been a searing experience for both of them, and they recognised that I would probably be going through the same things. So that was interesting. But, yeah, um, it's part of the job. You mentioned Africa there. So what was your first foray into journalism in Africa? So I actually... Um, had one of the diversions that happens to us all. I ended up marrying uh, a New York man that I met when I went there Um, and that sort of upended my plans for my career. So we did a deal that, you know, we got married and then six months later I decided to take a job in the developing world because he couldn't couldn't, uh, leave New York. And it ended up being working, working with journalists in Ghana and so while I was there, you know, I, I saw all these amazing stories. It was really when I realised that I could develop a, a freelance career uh, with lots of clients that I now had in the US and the UK and Australia and um, report from West Africa. And so, this, you know, the first stories that I, I covered were child slavery in the fishing industry And then I ended up in Liberia pretty soon after that, which was just ending um, a a terrible 15-year civil war. And so there were a lot of stories from that war of child child, uh, soldiers. It was particularly marked by child child soldiers. Uh, So, yeah, there was a lot of that sort of reporting in the years after that. I just want to talk about press freedoms briefly before we move on, because it has felt in recent months like there's been an attack on media with some notable incidents in the US and in China with Australian journalists. Are you feeling that that pressure and an attack on media agencies at the moment? I mean, both of those are examples of, I think, a, a, this new political climate around the world, you know, if not led by Donald Trump, certainly encouraged by Donald Trump, of nationalist movements and populist leaders from the Philippines to Turkey to um, certainly China has taken advantage of this um, moment in American leadership to ratchet up 
the uh, you know the the oppression of uh, press freedom inside China and also to control that use journalists to control that that rela- their relationships with international countries and uh, you know we do have to separate each of these. I don't think that this is a there's a dramatic uptick in violence against against Western journalists at the moment. I think you're looking at those two examples are an uptick in this idea um, of the the press as an enemy, which was you know is a is a a sad new development. Um, it was a new development in war zones, you know, that started sort of in the Arab Spring about ten years ago, uh, but we didn't see in the West. But the attacks on journalists in America, and of course, it's not just the Australian journalists, the American journalists that I've worked with for many years. A lot of my former students uh, were 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 being attacked in that as well, and you know, it's a really sad, worrying development in terms of violence against foreign journalists. Um, you know, Australian journalists have always been in the firing line, um, and I think in many ways it was probably more a thing, more something we were used to two decades ago and before that when there were a lot more foreign correspondents. You know, the fewer foreign correspondents in war zones we have, the fewer of them who are going to be hurt. Um, so you may not have seen that in the headlines as much lately, but, um, you know, with I, I remember when I first started out, there was an ABC cameraman killed in Iraq Um it's, you know, covering wars is a dangerous thing to do and it has always been so. Um, and thankfully, Australian journalists haven't had to cover a war up close for a while, but um, it'll no doubt happen again. But this this um, escalation in attacks on journalists, um, especially in the West where it hasn't happened before, is definitely concerning and, you know, Let's hope things go differently in America in November and maybe that things will go back to normal, but probably not. Okay, so coming back to Africa now, you've been working in journalism in sub-Saharan Africa since 2004. What is the media landscape like there? So, you know, I was just talking about how I first went to Ghana in 2004 and I realised pretty quickly that the, the problem that was wrong the problems with media in Africa were not a lack of training, which is what the Western aid agencies all thought. They were all coming in, especially media development organisations like, you know, the Thomson Reuters Foundation or BBC Media Action or the American versions of those um, were coming in and doing a lot of training. But the, the journalists were not being paid by their bosses. There were being, there was a, 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 distorted business model where the journalists were being paid by the people they wrote wrote about. And the first time I encountered that, I was at a a UN agency, a a UNICEF press conference, and they handed all the journalists, including me, an envelope envelope stuffed with cash. (laughs) And it was so commonplace that they actually gave it to the the Western journalist as well. Um, And it, you know, became pretty clear to me that this business model was never going to work. It was never going to incentivize independent reporting. So it was, it was, you know, just has these profound knock-on effects where when the journalists aren't paid to do independent reporting, they're only paid to do reporting that is paid for by by aid agencies or by 
corrupt politicians, then they don't cover stories. They don't see, they don't make news judgments saying, what what are the stories that are impacting Ghanaians the most? They say, who's going to pay me to cover what story? And so there's this distortion of what's covered. And then when it is covered, it's covered badly. It's just a single source story based on a press release. And it doesn't ever sort of, we're used to seeing how does this story impact somebody? So you never see the people who were impacted by the story. It's usually told very badly. And so, you know, across Africa, in almost all developing settings, this was the case. And it's, I've since been tr- told it's true in across Latin America and Asia and, and all developing um, world settings. And it's been exacerbated, of course, by the failure of um, the bi- media business model advertising. So it became really clear that we were really wasting our time trying to cha- train um, African journalists. In fact, it was quite condescending. <laughs> I saw some shocking condescension in my time. And that we'd be much better off uh, actually trying to tackle this business model problem. And there were so many interesting developments happening, especially in the States where I was at the time, um, on you know using technology to reach new audiences and to monetize them. And that we, there were so many things we could do to help these local businesses. And we could also um, persuade the aid world to do things differently and actually fund good journalism rather than you know, funding this corrupt business model. So I set up new narratives in 2010. We did it in Liberia, which I've regretted in some ways because it's a very, very difficult place to work. Um, it's an extraordinary country, country with an extraordinary history, but it was really devastated by the war. Um, it had a new female president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was the first woman president elected in Africa. And she was saying all the right things and she was a darling of the West. And, and I had a fantastic partner on the ground there, which I think is always really key. Don't, you know, too many aid projects go in and say, well, we know what will work best. We're going to put it, you know, tell you how to do it. Um, I was really led by a fantastic partner on the ground called Rodney Sear with a, a new startup newspaper that was doing really well. And so we have over the last 10 years been able to to divert that donor money from the corrupt practices that it was engaged in before by paying journalists to turn up to press conferences to rewrite their press releases, to actually fund it, get that donor money to fund good journalism and innovation in these newsrooms that could help the the business model of the newsrooms. Um, and so we've been doing that for 10 years now and it's been uh, hugely successful. I, I often describe it as um, it's very much like ProPublica, which started funnily about the same time in the US. And it's not The model is not very familiar here, but what they do is um, they work with newsrooms to do investigative stories. So ProPublica very rarely publishes by itself. It usually says, how can I have the most impact and they'll say this story is going to have the most impact in the New York Times, so they'll work with the New York Times, or it's going to have the most impact in the Chattanooga Bugle, so they'll work (laughs) with that paper. Um, They don't publish themselves, they don't compete with other media, and that's the same with us. We take donor money, um, so donors, Australian Aid has been a donor, um, interested in um, supporting women's issues in Liberia, and of course, and, and uh, Sierra Leone and Gambia, where we work. And so 
you know, we will use their money to fund reporting on the major issues plaguing women and also to fund and empower women journalists in those countries as well. So, um, you know, lots of great donors around the world have been really supportive of that model and I think it's going to increase going forward, hopefully. This is fascinating to me. So when you're pitching this idea to a donor, what are you pitching? Like what's what's the benefit that it will improve aid programs or that it will improve journalism in general? What's the hook? Good question. It's hard. Um, <laughs> it's really hard. It's It's got so much better lately. But when we first started out, we, you know, I would say to them, look, if you can fix the media in these countries, then you don't need to spend all this other money. Um, but they don't get that. The whole aid world is tends to be incentivized to, you know, I can say I trained 50 people or I can say I created three toilets or, or whatever it is. Um, but uh, so I didn't have a, a lot of luck until we really had donors who, who were smart, who were based on the ground, um, and they started to realise, and it's been, it's been very noticeable in the last five years that um, the aid world has started to ask itself tougher questions about its impact and be more respectful, more humble, I think. And so people started saying, well, isn't this payment that we're giving to journalists just a bribe? And they, start, they started to actually read the local media, which they didn't do before. They used to say, oh, that media is terrible. I'm not reading it without respecting the fact that that was the information ecosystem for that country. It may not have been as good quality as your newspaper at home, but it is the best this country has. And they, you know, it's, it's setting the national agenda for this country every day. So donors who started to actually read the local newspaper and they would see our stories or hear our stories and understand that we were, and they would ask locals and they'd understand the impact that we were having and they would see the difference between our reporting and others and they would see the impact we were having. And so they would come to us. Um, so it's really been a donor, It's it's been smart donors who want to do something differently and have humility, I think. And and thankfully there are more and more of them and also more and more who understand that media is critical. I don't I think that's been one of the blessings really of the the you know the rise of Trump and other populist leaders who've criticized the press, but also the collapse of the business model uh, around the world that people have started to understand that media that democracy is fragile and that media is a, a critical part of that. And I think they took it for granted before. Um, so there's been a silver lining. So media is critical to democracy, but why is media critical to aid? Oh, to development. Mm. Yes. Um, so uh, I, I use this example. Um, one of the biggest stories we had was um, on female genital cutting in Liberia, which was practised by about two-thirds of the population. And most of the, the donors who were working on this subject were having small community meetings all around the country. And they, you know, get women to, to turn up. The men usually didn't come. And they'd tell them all the, the evils of female genital cutting. And, the you know, the women would all sort of agree and go away. But often the women didn't have control over this. It was a 
business for the people who were perpetuating it and it was part of the social status. You know, if you couldn't be have a, a council job if your children, you weren't part of the secret societies that, were, you know, female genital cutting was part of. So it was really deeply interwoven. And I always equate this to imagine, you know, Australia had a drink driving problem and uh, we were just going around having community meetings all over the country and never in, engaging the Sydney Morning Herald and, you know, the network commercial news. Um, you would never do it. You understand that you need to create a national conversation and there need to be leaders who are out there saying this is wrong for these reasons. So I felt like the aid word was trying to do this through having these community meetings all over the place, which were important, absolutely, but without that national agenda setting piece. And so when we did this story, it, it was on the front page of the major newspaper and every breakfast radio station talked about it the next day. And then all the, it, it was it was so taboo in the country, no one had ever put it on the front page before and talked about it in this way and it had a real, it was posed a real threat to the traditional societies that practised it. So it caused an uproar and sadly the journalist had to go into hiding because of death threats against her. But after three weeks and a lot of pressure from the international community, three uh, ministers in the, the government came out and spoke out against female genital cutting for the first time in the country's history. And it began, we began to see steps to end it and eventually the president outlawed it. And that's what happens when you engage the national media. And I felt like, you know, donors were trying to do things without understanding information ecosystems, without understanding how things, how media is part of the ecosystem that drives change in their own countries and forgetting that it could have that same role uh, in, in these places as well. The last point I would make is that a lot of the challenges that you've named in Africa also exist in the Pacific. Is that on the agenda to, to turn your attention to the Pacific? I, it's, you know, I just uh, started looking at the Pacific uh, a bit more than a year ago and the similarities are so, so uh, evident. I mean, low income, uh, low uh, levels of infrastructure um, and a lot of the same challenges, um, especially to the business. And, in fact, the Pacific, the Pacific is tougher because at least Africa has population. So population can drive businesses often. And also, of course, there's a, uh, you know, the aid presence is immense there comparatively. Um, but, yeah, a lot of the same problems and a lot of the same potential solutions, which was, um, was heartening. Uh, and I think, you know, technology has been really big for media in developing countries around the world, include, including Africa. And I can see some opportunities that, that would be really sort of low-hanging fruit in the Pacific. So, you know, just helping the media in the Pacific understand technology better, use technology better, reach their diaspora to, to monetize, to, you know, put paywalls, low paywalls on the diaspora. You know, the diaspora from Fiji is large and relatively wealthy and they want to have news about what's going on at home. So, you know, maybe they can pay a dollar a month, which would go a long way to the business of a, a, a New Guinea PNG 
media house, for instance. And it's the same same um, process that we see in Africa. Thanks, Prue, for your time. That was episode 102 of Goodwill Hunters, brought to you by Goodwill Media. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and I'll see you next week.